You know, you spend more time at work than you ever do with your family. Right. And if the time you spend the most is really something you hate, it's not a good thing. And so you can't play at work, but you can make it fun. And so part of our, our whole value situation was how do we respect people? How do we how do we make it a fun place to be for the eight hours you're there versus it just being terrible? Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode and tune in for future conversations. Today, I'll be joined by 1971 University of Dayton graduate Jim Stitt. Jim currently serves as the executive chairman of the Cutco Corporation, where he previously served for over a decade as the president and chief executive officer. Thanks for joining me today, Jim. I'm glad to be here. Excited. Go Flyers. You are our first guest who is not a student, faculty member, or alumni of the School of Business at UD. Although you do have a UD degree, it's in mechanical engineering technology. Uh, but you did spend a lot of your career as a, as a business leader. And that's where I'd, I'd like to start our conversation with sort of your transition from, from an engineer into, into a business leader position. Uh, later on, we'll, we'll discuss your time at UD. Uh, could you start by telling us when you first found yourself managing people and, and thinking of yourself as a business leader? Well, I guess it, it really goes back to start growing up in a family business. Uh, my uh, grandfather bought a small plumbing heating service business in 1929. My uncle, my grandfather, after graduating high school, they joined the business. And so I, I grew up in a service retail business and, and they had plumbers working for them. So I understood one is dealing with customers dealing with dealing with my grandfather and my dad at work and <laughs> and and dealing with customers so one is there there was a piece of business that, that was in and my gut and as i got to start to look at, at college uh part of what uh, i won't say i was a great student i didn't miss school i went to school every day but uh as i thought about what i really was capable of doing i knew i knew how to fix things and mechanical, but growing up in the plumbing business, I just had mechanical aptitude. And as I looked at what to get into and, and what I thought I could get through, what my confidence level was to be able to graduate with, I saw this technology program at Dayton. My brother was a mechanic or electrical engineer uh, that was four years ahead of me at Dayton. So that got me to understand Dayton. That's where I learned, I guess, about the technology program. When I started there, there was an associate's degree, and then they had just added the bachelor's degree. And, and I really wanted the bachelor's degree, but, uh, so, but I thought that it was more applied. It was not as heavy in mathematics, and some of the, the physics and chemistry was more applied and algebraic. And I thought, well, that was the, the best place for me, and that's what led me to go down the path of getting a degree in that. But I guess in the back of my mind, uh, I always, I liked working with people. I liked directing people. I liked it, it just working with people. And that's where kind of led me to the point is when the day comes that uh, an opportunity comes that that's what I'll be doing. And it was, uh, it's actually, I guess when I, uh, when I joined Cutco or Alkes Corporation at the time, Alkes Cutlery in 1975 as an engineer, 
uh, I was working with people on the floor, uh, the production floor and helping direct them and the maintenance mechanics and things as to some ideas as to how to fix problems, how to problem solve. And so right there was working with people and getting to know the people. And that kind of, that led me down the path that certainly the opportunity to be in business was always in the back of my mind. I just wasn't sure that was the place for me to be in college. Gotcha. If I look back right now, it might've been a good place. Although I would never give up the, uh, the technical degree I had where, where it did for me. Well, you, you might've started somewhere different and, and never ended up where you are today. So I'm sure it worked out well for you. I, I listened to another podcast you did. Uh, the, the podcast is called Changing Lives, Selling Knives. It's all about, all about Cutco. And the episode I listened to was, was fantastic. And, and, and in it, you talked about the, the purchase of the company by the executive team in the early 1980s. And it, you just mentioned the name Alcast Cutlery, which I believe is, is where you started. And that was a, a subsidiary of, of Alcoa until Eric Lane and, and you and others bought it from, from Alcoa and then later changed the name to, to Cutco. Could you talk a little bit more about the buyout story for, for our listeners? Right. Just to give you a little background, I, I joined there in 1975. I went from, I was working for wherever aluminum in Chillicothe, Ohio. Chillicothe, Ohio was my home. That's what kind of also helped me get to Dayton. So I was working as a engineer at the pro, a project engineer at wherever aluminum. Wherever aluminum was a subsidiary that kind of controlled another subsidiary, which was a knife company. Wherever was one of Alcoa's first, very first businesses, what do you do with aluminum? And it goes clear back into 1908, 1909, where they started making pots and pans with it and selling them uh, in direct sales. So I started at the Cookware Company. Uh, it was 1975. And, and there, it, it was not a good business year in 75. And I had several of my friends that were, uh, that had been with Alcoa for quite a few years and had come to wherever from other factories that were getting laid off. And, and I got called over to the vice president's office and I figured mine was coming too. And when I got there, uh, Mr. McLeod says, uh, Jim, would you like to go to Olean, in New York to cut to Alcast Cutlery? And of course I had no clue uh, where Olean, in New York was quite truthfully. All I heard was the word New York. I really didn't want to go to New York city, but <laughs> I needed a job. We, uh, we'd been married for six months. And so, uh, uh, no, three years at that point. So um, I did, uh, I said, oh, okay, uh, we'll do this. And so I went home, told my wife where uh, I, she said, I said, you better sit down. And she knew other people getting laid off. And I said, she says, you either been laid off or transferred. And I said, well, I've been transferred to Olean, New York. And she says, where is that? And I said, well, St. Bonaventure's in Olean, New York. And she goes, well, that's where Bob Lanier played. <laughs> and she's a big sports fan. So that's, that kind of made, so at least she was going to where Bob Lanier was. So I went to the Alcast Cutlery uh, as a project engineer. Uh, the business was only, uh, the factory was only doing about 30 to 40% capacity. And why they were sending me there was to work on a pri building a private label business. So what could we do to get more business into the factory? Our primary product was Cutco, which we owned, but it was, uh, it was the, the sales had kind of, the sales team had kind of taken their eye off the ball they weren't growing it. They were wherever it was growing other things right? and the retail marketplace. And so I went there to see what I could do. And, and we ended up making knives for damn near every other knife company in the United States of some sort or another. And so I went there for that. Um, had a great time doing it. I, I, uh, and in 1981, 
at that point, I was the manufacturing manager. In 1981, I was transferred to Conover, North Carolina to run a powdered metal molding plant, uh, plant manager. And then um, it was shortly after that, I heard that Alcoa was starting to divest of businesses they had. They had a lot of subsidiary companies that really had nothing to do necessarily with aluminum. And they were starting to divest of companies that uh, were not directly tied to the aluminum manufacturing. Wherever was one of those. And the folks who bought wherever in uh, June of 1982 did not want a knife company. They were not interested in knife company. We were in the direct sales business as to how we marketed Cutco. And they weren't interested. And Eric Lane, uh, the partner, uh, my, he was my boss. He was the president of the company at the time. Uh, he had stepped in and says, uh, working with some of the relationships in, at Pittsburgh, and this goes to the relationships are everything and, and, right. and the world and business. He had some relationships there and they said, why don't you guys get the management team? Why don't you guys buy this little knife company in only in New York? And so they started working through that. And the fellow who had replaced me as manufacturing manager did not want to be part of a buyout. He would rather just taken the safety net of staying with Alcoa. And so the agreement was that, that uh, he, would, uh, he would stay there till uh, they had a job for him. And, and so my partner came back to me and said, hey, Jim, how would you like to come back to Olean? Uh, my wife and I thought about that and said, you know, this really what we really want to do, owning a company, being an entrepreneur was certainly uh, in, in the back of my mind as to how that could happen. This said it could happen. Uh, the other thing was that I knew that if I stayed with Alcoa and continued to progress, it was probably going to mean continue to keep moving. Yeah. My kids at that time were fifth and sixth grade and, and uh, one in third grade. And so, uh, and I had friends in Alcoa who had, had made, made moves, uh, especially when their kids were in high school. And I had good stories and I heard bad stories about yeah, how tough. they kind of lost their kids. Uh, in that transition, I thought, well, if I go back to OEM, when I loved the business, I loved making a finished product, not instead of making a component. We loved the people in OEM. It was a great community. We never loved the weather, but we, <laughs> but there's no, no place is ever perfect, but we loved the people. And, and when, uh, my wife and I talked about that and said, yeah, we need to make this move. So we went back and became uh, one of five partners who bought the company in September of 1982. And uh, we heavy leverage buyout, uh, 90% of it leveraged. Uh, we uh, borrowed money from the Bank of New York, and we had some paper that was being carried by Alcoa, but uh, we now own the business. And at that point in time, we had about 125 employees, and we're doing about $6 million as a wholesaler manufacturer. It was, uh, and it's shortly thereafter, uh, we bought it, uh, Corning Glass who in that period of time was making housewares products. They were making plates and dishes and things. And, mm -hmm. and they decided that they were going to expand their product line. And they thought knives was what they wanted to get into. And they had been to Japan. And in the, the 1982-83 period, Japan was the big competitor. It wasn't China. It was Japan. That's where right. things were going offshore to be. And they had gone there and they'd had some pricing. They came to us and said, I don't know that you guys could do this. Uh, could you meet the pricing? We'd be interested. Uh, we took a look at it. What they said was they wanted to control 20% of the mass market, which was, of course, a humidous product. Yeah, I that's mean, a lot. It, it, the big, big numbers. 
And that's what caught us as a manufacturer at the time. How could we get lots of product going through that factory? So we went into that. We said, yeah, we can do it. We gave them price. And they said, okay. At this point, it was a test. They were going to go into a test for a couple of years. We ended up buying, we had to buy a lot of new equipment to do some of the things we were doing there and upgrade the manufacturing process. We actually spent almost as much on new equipment as we did to buy the company to start with. So we almost double leveraged ourselves. Had that gone, had hundreds of thousands of pieces of cutlery all over the place for corning. About a year and a half in, year and three quarters in, uh, we get a call one day and corning says, uh, we changed our mind. We're not going to do this. And uh, that was just the, uh, that was almost a death strike. And so we worked through just how we were going to work through that. We'd never made money at this point yet. So how, how and, long you've got, you've got three kids at home. You've just, you've just borrowed a ton of money to buy this company. How, what, what's the period of time here? And what, what, are, what are the conversations you and your wife are having at home? Yeah. Well, first of all, there was, there was two kids. Two kids. Uh, I probably okay. met you later when I gave different dates. On. <laughs> two, two boys uh, who are both in the business still. Uh, one graduated from Dayton and the other one was at Dayton for two and a half years and graduated from St. Bonaventure in the school of business. So he's a business student. All right. So, uh, and actually it was funny. My son, uh, I tell these stories, I'll get on the phone and he is the CEO of the company. Now we'll be talking about some historical things. And, and I would tell the story about this. Uh, we almost went bankrupt between 84 and 85. We hadn't made any money yet. And the bank of New York had decided to pull out of Western New York. And it was a 15-year mortgage, but it was a three-year renewal on it each year. And they it said, we're going to call the mortgage. And we had a, we went to just about every bank we could think of. And we finally found a small consumer office uh, or a, a commercial office in Rochester, New York, that our, that our uh, accountant had found, uh, Connecticut National Bank. And they had said, if we could make the, uh, our portfolio, our, our performer for the year, then they would uh, take on our mortgage, give us a line of credit. And it was funny, man. I, and of course, the, the conversations my wife was saying, as I said, we, we grew up in, in the camping business and, and we dated since I was a junior in high school. So a lot of this, of this time of working the trailer business and all this uh, camping, she, she knew about. And she would just make a comment, well, we better not sell the tent <laughs> and, and uh, keep the tent. And I remember my son saying, you know, they were going through almost bankruptcy. I mean, we leveraged everything. We'd, we'd, uh, you know, we'd put up just about everything we own and on these loans that we had. And my son says, I don't remember. I never knew that was a problem back then when we were going through this. You know, I, mom and dad never talked about it to us. Uh, so if they were doing it, they were keeping it to themselves. And, and we, worked, we worked through this and, uh, and got through it. But part of what, what it really did, as I got to say, Corning did is probably one of the biggest favors that could have ever been done. <laughs> they said they weren't going to do what they said they were going to do. Right. Cause it's, it would have put us in, in the uh, lower end manufacturing cost in that chasing that piece of the marketplace. So this, uh, this had us a come to meeting that we had to come to and say, what were we going to do? And, you know, we're weighing out, do we come up with other things we could make under product names and try to chase on price? Or do we say, hey, Cutco is who this company was started as in 1949. That was our product. It's a high-end product. It's high quality, high price. And we said, that's where we have to go. That is who we are. That's what we know. And we, we went out on that, uh, on that limb and said, that's who we're going to be. And it probably was the best thing we, that it could have ever happened. Because we probably, if we'd gotten into the big volume, 
we would have stayed there and chased the volume with lower margins. And instead, we chased who we are, what we own, and what our people knew. They knew how to make high quality. And when you get in, you take the same group of people and you try to say, well, we don't, the quality doesn't need to be quite that high. They don't know what that means. And so you're still trying to make the high quality stuff for the low cost. So it got us back to who we are, what our brand is, and we're going to go do Cutco. And, and that decision was made. And in 85, it says, okay, we are going to be Cutco and we're going to unload over the next few years. We're going to unload this private label stuff, what we can get rid of, but we want to figure out how to be Cutco totally. And that's, and that's who we are today. I think so many people get into the, they try to be all things to all people. And, and it's really, especially in business, becomes really challenging. It's one of the things I love about working at the University of Dayton. We have a very clear mission and, and everybody knows the, the direction that, that we're going. And it sounds like you all kind of found that for, for Cutco. Uh, so you started, started with 125 employees. You, you almost went bankrupt. And, and what, is, what does Cutco look like today? Well, we have 800 employees today. We actually had some huge growth in 2002, 2003, which we were way behind in shipments. And we actually got up to 1,200. Wow. And then had to lay 400 off a couple of years in because this, we were catching up with sales we were behind on, as well as projecting if the growth kept there. That's probably one of the hardest, that's probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life was to, is to change people's lives by, by having to lay them off. Yeah. You know, that this is not just about business. This was lives. And, but we got down and we vacillate between seven, 850, 700 to 850. That's kind of where we've been. We've gone from 6 million in sales to over 300 million in sales. Um, and we are now the largest employer in Olean, our, our community of 14,000. We got there the wrong way. In February, the largest employer, which was bought up by Siemens Company in, in February, or and five years ago, in February announced that they were going to cease manufacturing operations in Olean, and 500 people would be laid off by June uh, of 2022. So by default, our 800 employees took us to the, uh, to the, to the highest uh, employment in town, biggest employer. And we take that seriously. I mean, we were the second largest employer before, and, and we take that as a social responsibility. We really, it's part of our value thing is we, we belong there. We need to stay there. It's not about what's more comfortable. Where's the temperature better? Where's what it's, it's, we grew up there. The people are there. The community's there. Uh, our customers, it's to protect all those people. And that's really where we've gotten to in our value stream is that's who we're all about and how we do things. So are there other ways that, you know, obviously, employing such a large number of people is a is a great way to to give back and support the community. Are there other things that that Cutco is is doing uh, to to support that community? Yes, we uh, again, fortunately or unfortunately, fortunately, we're probably the biggest giver in the community. Uh, we've uh, the executive hall and that school business at Bonaventure is the Cutco executive center. The lobby and the only general hospital is the Cutco lobby. The uh, gymnasium and the YMCA is the Cutco Gymnasium. Uh, so uh, we, we know you to get back. We've been very fortunate. Uh, none of us in that ownership team uh, grew up wealthy. We, we all grew up as in, in middle class, but even in the lower middle class. 
And so we, we take with responsibility as to what we've gained and what right. we've gotten. And, and uh, also, we happen to do a few things at the University of Dayton, which is not the community, but it's, a, it's something that's pretty important to, to Carol Absolutely. and I also. But, it, but it's, it's how we get back to the community uh, and do it. And it's, it's a responsibility as a company. We set up a, a Cutco Foundation uh, in, in the early 1900s. I know I was, uh, I mean, 1990s was uh, with my partner, I said, uh, you know, we all set up a, we all set up a foundation. We've been given a fair amount of money away in the community. We were taking it from operations every year. I said, you know, we really ought to do a set up a foundation. And then when we have really good years, let's really pour it into the foundation because there's some years that aren't going to be so good, but we right. still want to be able to give and take care of the things in the community that we take care of uh, in the downtime. So we did set up the Cutco Foundation which is, it's going very well. It's actually got about $11 million in it right now. And, uh, my son, my two sons, uh, and actually my wife are the, uh, and our CFO of the company are the, uh, the board of directors of the Cutco foundation now. And so it, it does a lot of things in the community. Uh, we, we take the fact that we're the biggest employer and the responsibility we have, we take it, uh, we take it with a, a lot of responsibility because it's not, it's not about power. And we use that power very cautiously. The one thing is when you are a big fish in a small bowl, you do have a lot of opportunity, but you can abuse power also. Right. The fact is to be able to lead and make suggestions and help guide your community is the role we take. And part of that is also being in leadership of giving back, uh, both uh, with our time uh, and also with money. And so that's that's a big part of what we do, and take it uh, take it seriously. Yeah, another thing that I I gathered from the podcast I listened to, there was a lot of discussion about the Cutco culture and the the rather amazing average tenure of of most of the employees. How, how did you and other leaders kind of build such a, a meaningful culture within the company? Uh, it starts. It probably goes back to where it really started to change in 1977. I got there in 1975 in April. In September, we went on a six-week strike. Uh, I had just come from wherever the year before and had gone through a six-week strike there in Chillicothe, Ohio. So here in, in a 12-month period, my wife and I went through 12, month, uh, 12 weeks of strikes. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I'm working third shift as a watchman uh, on the plant. And, um, and then in 1977, Eric Lane, who was the partner I was with for over 30 years. He was the, the uh, president who led the, the buyout. We worked together for over 30 years. Unfortunately, he passed away last December, but we were very good friends, but very good partners. And it's, you don't find a lot of businesses that have partners that stay together for 30 years. No. Unfortunately, you don't even find many marriages that stay together <laughs> for 30 years. And by the way, my wife and I celebrated 50 years of marriage in July of this year. Well, congratulations. And so, and then I became a Dayton fly, a golden flyer in May of this year. So uh, this was my 50 year year. So, so anyway, uh, I hope you're married. I hope your 50 years of marriage was the bigger celebration. It was, it was, it was, (laughs) was. I didn't even know about 50 year flyer thing. (laughs) Of course, being COVID, there wasn't exactly uh, any big event to come back for, but, and actually my wife and I, we started dating juniors in high school. So we dated for six years before we got married. Uh, I graduated in May. We got married in July of that, that year. And so 
we know a lot about each other. So they're in the, in the whole lot of secrets and it's, it's great. And it's been, uh, we're great partners. She's my best friend and uh, we've been great friends. And I think that that helps in the business side too, is when you got a partner like that, that uh, understands what we were trying to do, what her role needed to be and how she had to play. And she took care of the kids and also helped take care of the business when we were together at events we went to. So my partner came in 1977 and a new president in 77. And a year within that year, 77, we started through negotiations again. And uh, quite truthfully, there was probably more fights going on in the back room between him and some folks from Alcoa than there was going on in the front room with the union. It was, you know, it was just really, we felt being too tight and we still belonged to Alcoa at that time. And what we said is we really got to change things. Um, and we, uh, we negotiated and, and luckily we'd had a year before that to start with how we started to deal with the people, but we negotiated a contract, uh, which probably was one of the more lucrative ones had been in many, many years. It was uh, agreed to with very high numbers, very high percentage. But where we started was, was, was the value proposition was respect, individual respect both ways. We had to respect the people and they had to respect us and they had to know us. Right. And, um, Clearly, the management team that was had been there for most of that time before spent time and they spent time in the front offices and the plant was back there. Well, we got out on the floor. We spent a lot of time on the floor with people. And I will say that before I became 70, I could remove, remember everybody's name. I knew everybody's name. I knew the employees. I knew their families. I knew their kids. But we got out to where we knew people and they knew us and they knew my family. Uh, and so and we. And we did the business like it was a family. You know, you spend more time at work than you ever do with your family. Right. And if, if the time you spend the most is really something you hate, it's not a good thing. And so you can't play at work, but you can make it fun. And so part of our, our whole value situation was how do we respect people? How do, we, how do we make it a fun place to be for the eight hours you're there versus it just being terrible? And so we started down that track and getting to know people and spending time on the floor. Many of the meetings I would have when I'd have a meeting, a production meeting, we'd go out in one of the aisleways and we'd stand out there and have a, have a meeting versus locked in an office somewhere. But just getting to know people, mutual respect. Our business is built on mutual respect. And that's one of the big, big values. I think it's been a big part of our culture as to why people want to stay there. We certainly have tried to be uh, as, as good as we can be and our compensation and our, and our uh, benefits uh, and stay in business. But, uh, but it's also, it's more than that. You can, there's a lot of people paid a lot that aren't very happy working where they work. Right. And so it's, it's, you, you have to do a blend of both. It's the value situation. And I think that's, and that's where we've carried on. Uh, both my boys have that in, in spades. The value is that we're, we're tied to the community. The community is important. Uh, we are not for sale. Uh, we're not going to do those things. Most unfortunately, most companies that are sold uh, get broken up at times and sold for pieces. Uh, and the people left behind are the employees and the community that's left with empty buildings. And, and so our key is this social responsibility. Uh, and uh, it's starting to show up more in, in business books a little bit of where it's <laughs> profit and purpose. Yes. But as to where social responsibility or when I talk to my flyer friends, I say, I don't think Father Shamanad would would move a place because the weather was a little better a hundred miles away or a thousand <laughs> miles away, or you can make a few pennies more. 
uh, it would be worrying about who you left behind, the love of people, uh, you know, and it's mutual love and respect. And again, that's, I think what, that's how we run the business. And I think it's, uh, and we're respected in the community, not just because we give them, we give the community money, but it's, uh, it's how our people talk about us, you know, and it's, it's true. Doing, doing well by doing good. I hope sounds like from your your stories that your your UD education played a role in, in some of that that value system that, that you have. Well, let's go back to your uh, you're a young kid in in Chillicothe, Ohio. What what brought you to the University of Dayton? Well, I would say the uh, the first thing was the basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I was a big uh, sports fan. Basketball played basketball in high school and. And um, I say my brother was there. And so that's where I got to know about Dayton. And this is back when uh, Henry Finkel was the, uh, the uh, center there. And, and I remember laying in bed uh, back then. Uh, this would have been in the uh, late, uh, in the early 60s, the, the 62, 63, that uh, my brother was there. And I knew that uh, he wasn't as big a sports fan as I was, but I knew Dayton was playing Kentucky. I remember laying in bed at night listening to a tournament game on my transistor. And back then, uh, a lot of kids don't understand to a transistor radio had no speakers in them. <laughs> it was an earphone. <laughs> you stuck the <laughs> earphone in. And I remember laying just listening to uh, Dayton play and Dean Rupp uh, at, at Kentucky. And so I loved the basketball team. And then, as I said, I, I learned about the technology program and a technology degree, which Dayton was one of the earlier schools to do such a thing uh, tied into their engineering school. And so that that really directed me. I said, this is something I think I could do. This is something I could excel at. Um, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence at that point, certainly in the schoolroom. but, uh, but I, uh, that's what I, you know, so those two things. And I knew the university from uh, going to uh, see my brother and picking him up and taking him over and, and that type of thing. So it was uh, just no one knows and really never looked at anywhere else. Dayton's the place I looked at. I knew about it and, and that's where we ended up. And it was, a, it was a perfect fit. When you think back at your, your time at UD, were there any courses or, or professors that had a, an impact on your life? Well, I had, had several. I mean, the, uh, Bob Mott and Duke Golden, who was the chair of the department at the time, and Bob Wolf or some that I, that I can really remember having several courses from. In fact, it was lucky a couple of those guys. A year ago, I had lunch with them. I was over and James Brothers uh, set up a, a luncheon where I could meet some of my professors. That's it's uh, it's kind of odd when you're, you know, when you're a kid, uh, you think somebody who's 30, maybe is, is a lot older than they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, Bob Mott, I remember having him in school. And I know he went to, I remember him telling me about the, uh, going to GM, GMAC uh, college in engineering. And, and, and then my son goes back to Dayton and Bob Mott's one of his teachers. <laughs> I'm going, holy cow, you know, I guess he, re- <laughs> he went, well, he wasn't, he was really in his early twenties, I think. So, uh, the course that I, I think I really love, and I, and I know do a lot of, when I, I was a trustee at St. Bonaventure for nine years, I just came off the board a year ago that, uh, there's not a lot of history in programs and in, in the curriculums anymore, but there was an American democracy course was in the technology program for hmm. the, the liberal arts side of it. I loved it. I thought it was a, it was just one of those things. I thought, boy, you know, everybody ought to have one of these somewhere in a curriculum. But I think that was just a great course. But I, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the, pretty much all the things that, that I had. And I, uh, 
I did not cut class. Again, I say I was not a student who learned it by staying, you know, cutting class and staying home and reading and trying to pick it up in the book. I knew if I went to class and I'm a visual learner, which uh, the, the last couple of years of COVID probably would have been tough for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but I, I, I didn't cut class. I almost never missed class. And then that's how, how I learned. And, and it was a social part of being in class too and seeing people. Yeah, I mean, even though we're, well, they, they call us a professional school in the School of Business and similarly the School of Engineering, but being part of a, a greater university where there's a, there's a general sort of liberal arts education, I think it's really, really valuable for our students to critical thinking and writing and communication and, and, and history, right? So those are all great yep. things we're getting at, at UD. Do you have uh, an example of how your, your UD education may have helped you through a, a tough ethical dilemma, maybe, maybe in business, maybe, maybe in your personal life? Well, I would say that, uh, first, I would say that the, my ethical backgrounds, uh, I'm going to give them my parents to start with. They were okay. both, they were both very good at that. And I grew up in, as I say, with business with my dad, my grandfather. Uh, I went to 12 years of Catholic education. And so UD was four more. And so I think, you know, all that uh, certainly struck uh, the good and the bad, the ugly. I hope the good was that you, you certainly got values and you learn that um, the one thing religion did is it taught you to do things because it's the right thing to do and not because it's the law. And I think what UD certainly, uh, the, the uh, experiences there with several of the brothers and, and the, the religion and all that, it just continued to reinforce, I think, the value system that I had grown up in. So it wasn't like, thrust into something totally different in a whole different right. direction. It just continued to reinforce. You already had a strong base. It had a strong base and they just helped cement that into doing what was right. And then hooking up with, in, in business with the partners that I had, having that same background, or the same feeling of values, it just, it just strengthened when So in the business, when it came down to doing what's right or doing what was uh, most profitable, uh, the right thing became a whole lot easier to make those decisions. Uh, as to what we did. So it was just, it was a strong reinforcement, uh, great experience of being there, just continue to be reinforced at doing what's right. Well, so I, I just saw you on campus. We, we met we met here in my office a couple yeah. weeks ago, um, but you, you graduated in 1971. I imagine things look quite a bit different today than they did when, when you were here. What, what new additions or what things on campus sort of surprise you or, or stick out as the most different from the way it was when you yeah. were there? Well, it's it, because my son's being there and I served on the advisory board of the School of Engineering while my son was in school. So we did get back uh, fairly often. So I know a lot of alums, are, it's 20, 25 years before they get back. But just to seeing the continuous change of school, the, in the law school and, and Kettering, uh, the Kettering dorms and uh, what was going on there. When I was there, uh, you had Stuart Hall and Marycrest and and founders, and that was kind of that was your choice if you had any chance at all to live on campus. That was it. And then it was the neighborhoods, and of right. course, and you've got uh, I mean, uh, so many new buildings. Uh, there, uh, the engineering building was just built actually while I was there. The engineering building went in because okay. I had most of my classes in St. Joseph's Hall. Okay, so that's where the Technical Institute was located in St. Joe's, so most of my classes were there. Uh, of course, the neighborhood now is uh, is predominantly owned by the university, so it certainly looks a little, the outsides of the houses, anyway, look a whole lot different than they used to a little bit. Just a little bit nicer. Yeah, a little bit <laughs> little bit nicer. Um, 
I actually lived at 12 Longview. Actually, we, we lived in Stewart Hall our freshman year. And back then, uh, actually getting, say, being able to get a dorm was, was really tight. You either had to be a really bad student or, or one of the better ones to get to stay on. And so I remember between my freshman and sophomore year, there was a group of us that we were trying to find a house off campus. You just had to, you, you were given a list of places and you kept calling. And we'd gone through the whole list. We were down to the very last house. And uh, we, we called and, and the guy said, well, maybe I have a place. And he's, his office was over on Brown Street. And it was actually Donnie May's uncle, the basketball player. Which, <clears throat> so we went over and he sits us on the couch. There's four of us. He starts grilling us about where we're from, what we did. And, and the truth is, he, uh, we, we said, well, of course, we're all from here. We're all local, small town, community, rural community, uh, so on and so forth. So he says, well... I'm going to take you over and show you this house. It was a four person house. And he says, if the guys are there, I'm going to tell them you're looking at the house for the summer. And if you like it, I'm going to kick them out. <laughs> because they said they damn near destroyed the house. They broke windows out of the house in January. Didn't tell him for a month. Um, and it was just, it was really almost trash. And he says, if you like it, I'll paint the place and I'll buy new used furniture for the whole house. So we were, we were lucky to get that. It was 12 line view. There was an alley right next to it. We lived right on an alley. And right at the end of the alley, if you went down the alley, there was a place called the bookstore. It was a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so when my mother would call and say, where are you? Where you been? I said, I've been at the bookstore. And she said, well, you, you got to do an awful lot of shopping for books. You know, I said, well, every once in a while. I think that's Rudy's flyaway now or something. It's kind of in that spot. It was down yeah. there where that, where that used to be. But we lived in that house for three years. And uh, it was uh, things I remember that were there right at the end of that street on Stone Mill, the right across Stone Mill was the uh, Bojan Field, where we used to go watch the, uh, the football. At that point in time, Dayton was a Division I football school. Okay. And, and we played Toledo and Miami and uh, Bowling Green and High University. And so a lot of those schools, Temple, were the, back, uh, the football. So I mean, we just lived down the streets where we'd do that and um, enjoy it was just very convenient where we lived there but that whole neighborhood i noticed that house is still pretty much the same house when i drove by uh the outside's been painted up a little bit but most of the houses have, have certainly been cleaned up some my granddaughter is there right now she's a junior in the school business so that's she's, pretty neat she's there right now in the, and, uh, and marketing and so it's nice to have her back my son graduated from there so we're on the third generation uh flyers and uh, we're we're all into flyers so i love it do you have any any stories from your time at UD that you'd be willing to share with the public audience? And, and remember, your your kids and even your grandkids might might be listening. Well, this is one I say was a scary one. First, I told you about how we found this house, and it was like the last house on the list. And I don't know where we were going to end up if we if we didn't nail this house, where we we're going to live the following year. But so we get it, and we're in there for uh, it's actually. The uh, the owner sold the house uh, from the time we rented it to uh, it's actually a district attorney in, in Kettering. And uh, we come home one day from class and there's this great big sign that's stuck in our front yard that says condemned. <laughs> and so and it had a number on that. So we we called the number and this uh, and, man, you know, of course, we already we were lucky to have this place. And now all of a sudden, we're, what's going on? So we called the health of the board or whatever it was. And, and this lady came out, what she told us was that the house was condemned 
because for only it was it was eligible for two people but not four. Oh. The one bedroom, we had three of us in the one bedroom. We had a set of bunks and a down bed. And then there was one bedroom they said wasn't big enough for anybody. <laughs> it was a no bedroom. And, um, you know, so she sits us down on the couch and we scramble around. We, truth is, we really took pretty good care of things. We were taking care of things for kids. And she says, finally, she says, well, if you guys stay here and you keep, you keep the house like I see it today and you promise to do that, uh, I'll let you stay here and we'll pull that sign down. The four of you can stay here. So, uh, again, doing the right thing and not just being not yeah. trashing the place, uh, saved us a place to live. So, so that was uh, certainly, uh, one, one key story that we had that was, uh, it was a scary one as to where, where we were going to live. But, <laughs> and then we ended up living out. there for, we stayed in that place for three years. So, wow. um, I got a dog my senior. Don't ask me why I went out to the pound and got this dog my my roommate's uh, uncle group shepherds big dogs and so we went to the pound i can't remember exactly where it was i remember driving over there and i was looking i wanted a big dog and he's with me and, he, and we're looking at these pups and you're looking he's looking for the ones with the big feet he said if they got big feet they're gonna be big dogs so i brought this pup home we weren't supposed to have a dog in the house and uh, so we had him sleeping in the basement and uh, he got it was like a week or two in this dog gets really sick. I mean, he's just coughing and it sounds like, you know, somebody's got bronchitis. I don't have a lot of money. Right. So, but I got to do something. So I take the dog to, to the vet over there, which is uh, what I call the foo-foo vet where you got your little cubicles. And I grew up in a rural town. My vet was a real dog. He, he took a doc. He took care of the cows and the farm animals. So I go over and the doc, the doc looks at him and says, well, I think he's got bronchitis. And he gives him, gives me some pills and, at the time, I would have said he charged me $75. I don't know how much it was, but it was a whole lot, almost more than I had. So I take it and I go home. Of course, the dog never got better. And it was the following week. I, I was going home back to Chillicothe. And so I threw the dog in the car and we, we'd, we'd go back home. And um, so I take the dog down to my old farm vet, <clears throat> puts him up on the table. And he comes in. It's like two seconds. He says, the dog's got distemper. Well, along the way, though, I guess I called back to the pound, right? When I was sick, I said, you know, I thought maybe there was a vet over there I could get to just look at the dog. And they said, well, no, we don't. But said, just bring him over and we'll destroy him and you can get another one. Okay. Well, that's, that, no, that's not exactly what I, I didn't have that in mind right now. So anyway, I took him back to my vet. He says he's got distemper. And he says, I'll give him a double dose of the vaccination. And then you got to bring him back in two weeks and I'll do it again. But he might not live, Jim. But we'll try. Well, he did. <laughs> I had to put him to sleep at 16 because uh, his hip displacement. He was a big dog. He was a lab, German Shepherd mix. And so you kept him for 16 years? I kept him for 16 years. Wow. And, uh, and uh, so we, well, I had a dog when we got married. So we had the dog. <laughs> when Carol and I got married, we, I came with the dog. So, yeah. and, uh, so, you know, so some stories like that as to what we went through and Behind you, you've got something framed. It looks like it says Dayton Flyers on it. What, what, what is that? That is a, uh, it's a Dayton Flyers shirt uh, that I picked up at her fraternity auction. I was back a few years ago. Somebody had been actually down to one of the bars. And uh, George Janke, Henry Finkel, uh, Don May, or um, the coach, and George Janke came in. <laughs> I got a blank on the... Uh, Don Donahue came in. 
So they got him to sign the shirt. They had the shirt. They got him to sign that. So that's the piece I bought at the auction. Of course, I remember all those guys. Those were yeah. Those are the guys who were there when I was there. So yeah. So I got a lot of I got a lot of dating stuff around here and uh, memorabilia. Also had that little uh, see that little head cover came out of the Flyer Enterprises. A little Reed Flyer head cover. A little Reed Flyer cover here. Yeah, I got that when I was over there a few years ago. We What's your favorite piece of memorabilia? Well, it's. I'd say it's unfortunately it's not flyer. <laughs> it's, oh, then don't tell. What's your favorite piece of flyer memorabilia? Well, I have a ball. Actually, I tell you the story. I, I have this ball. Well, I used to have a. a it was Justin Bayer was a uh, was the advancement guy from. I from remember come, You remember Dustin? And he came to visit me. We became very good friends. He's you know, now right? uh, athletic director of a high school he, down in Cincinnati. He, yeah, he is. It's uh, yeah, it's a he he had his business was welcome to college, and actually we helped. Um, Carol and I uh, loaned him some money, gave him some money along on his business to get started as he was going along. But he came, to, he was sitting in my office one day and I got all this Ohio State stuff. I'm a, I am a big Ohio State fan. I never wanted to go to Ohio State. Oh, you're from Chillicothe. You had to be. I, I, I grew up going to Ohio State football games in, in 1960, 61, watching uh, Ohio State win the national championship in basketball. So we'd have these uh, auctions at Bonaventure when I, and when the kickoff for the basketball season, then my wife would volunteer and work on that. One year, the athletic director comes out and he's got this basketball. He's got this Ohio State basketball. No sight, nothing on it. Just got the big logo. And he says, and he knew I was a Ohio State fan. And he says to Carol, I says, I bet Jim would like to have this. She goes, no, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Well, why not? She said, well, there's nothing on it. And he goes, well, who would he like to have on it? And she goes, well, there's probably only two names. One of them would have to be Jerry Lucas, or they don't have to be John Havlicek. And he goes, oh, oh. he goes, okay. And of course, this is like maybe the last week, October, first week of November. Well, right before Christmas, he comes to her and says, here, and he's got this ball. It says, best of luck to Jim, best of luck, John Havlicek. Wow. So that's probably, you know, probably one of my most valued. But then, so anyway, Justin Bear is in my office seeing all this stuff. And he goes, where's the dating stuff? And I said, e and? <laughs> he goes, oh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so he said, what would you like? I said, oh, I'd like that Donnie May team. So he got me a basketball. I got that, I got that in there. That whole, I got that signed by all of them. The whole team? The whole team. That's yeah. pretty special. Yeah, so that was that's special. And I've got things like uh, Bobby Knight basketballs and, and uh, John Wooden signed basketball. A lot of stuff I got from at the Bonaventure auctions and, and then collecting more Dayton stuff. And then I got a ball two years ago that, that uh, was signed by the, uh, the Dayton team. Uh, it wasn't the one that was the uh, number three rated. It was the year before that. Year but, before. Uh, that was a good team. But team. it had most of the players, but that I got one with that whole team signed on it. And that, actually we had an alumni event down here and uh, Eric uh, brought that ball to me. We watched the ball game in our house and he gave that to me. He had that ball signed. So that's uh, that's a pretty special thing because I remember that team. And they won the NIT the, my freshman year then. They came off of losing to, to UCLA the year before in the finals and then won the NIT the following year. So that's, uh, that was a lot of fun. So. If you had one meal on or near campus, where would you go? <laughs> now you're talking about places that were there when I was there. Well, you could go either way. You could go well, back when well, you were there. You could go today when you come visit your granddaughter. Yeah. Well, back then, I guess the key would be is to go back there. And again, I said, 
didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't go to the Pine Pub a lot. <laughs> I didn't even know about it. I mean, I knew about it, but I'd never been in it until right. I've been there since we go back and visit. Probably with Frisch's. There was a Frisch's on the corner. There's a, the UD sign down there right now, where the gate, gateway to yep. the university. We'd go to Frisch's. That was an inexpensive, better meal than the uh, than the McDonald's or the whatever the ones were down there on Brown Street. But uh, that'd be where we go. We didn't go out much though, but we we did all the cooking at home. Uh, that we did a pretty good job of uh, buying food and living economically. Our junior, our sophomore, junior year, senior at the house there. We'd all I started out doing all the cooking because I knew how to cook, and then finally I said, "This isn't working, guys. Everybody's going <laughs> to cook at least one night." You either got to cook or you got to get a, a casserole sent from home. There you uh, go. And so, but now we uh, we all throw ten dollars a weekend, and we go do our shopping, and and uh, we ate pretty good. So, when you come visit your granddaughter now, where do you take her? Uh, you know, I'm got the memory. There's a there's several places down there on Brown Street now. There's a, there's a Coco's and uh huh. Yeah, I think that's the place we lo- that was been very nice. We've been there and been there with James Brothers a couple times. I, I love Coco's. We do a lot of events there, and I, I always enjoy their food. Yeah, there's there's two or three right in there, and I'm just having trouble with the name, but there's a few of them right there on Brown Street that we've gone to really like, and that's probably where we uh, where we hang out to. Awesome. Is there is there anything else you'd like to to share with us, or any questions you have for me? It's just uh, it's it it's great. Uh, Flyers are a great place. Dayton's a great place. Uh, it's values. Um, I uh, I know at Bonaventure, I I went through a period of time there when I was on the board. I had somebody that said we were looking at. It was a marketing committee, and they just said there's too many brown robes on the website, and they made the point that uh, uh, he said, you know, the kids today, that's not what they're looking for. And of course, the whole point was how religion is is it's slipping, and you know, practicing Catholics are down twenty percent, and so on and so forth. And and I finally I, I listened to that for a while, and it was it was not in person; it was on the phone. And I finally I said, you know, if, if the if the brown robes aren't there, what's our hedgehog? You know, we're just a little school. I mean, we're a rural area, right? Uh, a little liberal arts in the middle of nowhere. Who are we? I guess. That, and I remember spending a lot of time with several of the friars, and really just delving into this question and the, and the guy who was the chair of the board at the time and uh, just, you know, some thoughts and all that. And the, the chair, he, he picked up this podcast. He said, here, look at the, he said, listen to this. He said, it's, it's somebody at Harvard. They're sitting in the square. And he said, but dude, listen, it's only, it's only a minute and a half long. So do listen to it. And it was real clear what it got to at the bottom. He says, you know, we understand religion is faltering today. Uh, that less and less people are, that's not where their interests are. They're tied up on Sundays or doing other things. He said, but here's the bottom line. Here's the punchline. When religion goes away, we can't have enough laws. You know, and it never really, it was part that, that struck me. I never really thought a lot about it. I mean, I grew up in Catholic education and, and all this along or whatever religion it is. That, but the fact of learning to do what's right because it's right, not because it's a law. And right. if there is, and, and religion probably did. And you think back in the times, religion did govern right. a lot of people. That was the governing body. And so it, it really made a lot of sense there. And I think it was a, a lot of the same things you learn at Dayton. I know when I brought it, brought it up, though, I, I said to some, I was talking to some of them, I said, go Google the University of Dayton and just tell me what the highlight is on the site when it comes up. Top tier Catholic university, not hiding it. Nope. And they're doing okay. 
You know, so why are we wanting to hide ours? You know, and so I think it's just the fact is that that it is that. But basically, whether you want to say it's Catholic, it's a school of values, and values uh, you need them, and they will live with you for life, and you'll continue to to grow on those and and grow deeper, and it will make you a good life if you have a good value system. Right. And Dayton UD is a place that really will help reinforce that. We, we welcome all faith traditions, but we have, you know, the, the one that brought us here and, and the one that gave us our value system. And we're going to we're going to put that front and center. Yes, it sure is. And it was a, it was a great time that I spent there and I I appreciate it. And uh, and it's fun. It's fun being able to give back. I mean, the truth, I got to tell you a point in time when I probably never really wanted to go talk to the dean. I certainly didn't want to talk to the president of the university because I was scared that I was intimidated. And now these are all really good friends I have. Uh, you know, that uh, I never saw myself growing to that point. Right. You know, I didn't have the confidence, but it, and uh, I just, it's a lot that's come there. Uh, professor, you know, the, the Duke Golden, who was the, uh, the chair of the, uh, of the technical department. I remember one thing he says, you guys are professionals, you guys and girls. We did have one girl in the technical institute at that time. He says, you're professionals, act like professionals. You don't join unions. You don't do these other things. You're professionals. Be treated like a professional dress like a professional, grow up like a professional. And, you know, and it, was, um, it was some real key things I can remember of Duke making that in, in one of his classes one day. So, But it was great. Jim, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me today. I, I imagine this interview provided our listeners with a very interesting and, and deep look at Cutco and, and your leadership style. I look forward to seeing you back on campus again soon, maybe for a basketball game. Yeah, well, I was hoping – I still haven't figured it out yet. I was really looking to when that Bonaventure game was going to be because we're big Bonnie fans. And uh, it's a tough game for me to watch Bonaventure play Dayton. Uh, Bonaventure is supposed to have the team this year. They really, they're getting some pretty high ratings. But uh, so I was waiting to see that schedule. And that schedule came out on January 2nd. And I'm going, oh, my. You know, I'm thinking, I'm talking to Carol about how, well, maybe we can work this because normally we would be down, we'd be coming to South Carolina, which where I am right now, I'm in South Carolina. Okay. That we'd come down here, but now it's June, January 2nd. And she even says, well, Reagan won't be back to school yet on January 2nd. You know, we can't go visit her. So, so I don't know, but we probably want to get the best. We might make that happen yet that we'd come to Dayton. And actually I have a, uh, a couple people I'm working with an Olean business development corporation and, and the entrepreneur center at Bonaventure that would like to see the arcade and the entrepreneur group there. So maybe, We'll ride down with them in a car and then we'll fly down to Hilton Head from there and they can we can do a little visit, spend a couple of days there in January and see some of that and do that. So but, uh, hope We'd to see you soon. We'll get back show. at some point to see you. So, yes. All right. Thank you. Uh, I, hope our, I hope our listeners will join us again for the next episode of the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers. Thanks a lot, Kara. Go Flyers. Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, Please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.